A very good morning to all of you. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And right now we are looking at the uh, Bible for sermon this morning. When Jesus gave the great commission to go and make disciples, Jesus surely knows that over time, it gets increasingly difficult. We all want to be obedient, and we believe in the importance of bringing the life-changing, the life-changing, eternity-altering message of the gospel. But the path has never been easy. As we would like it to be, we live in what we call today a post-Christian culture. We are living in a post-Christian culture. By that, I mean we live in a period of time following the decline of the importance of Christianity all around the world. Instead of reception, instead of receptivity, we find more and more resistance and rejection. How do we communicate the truth of the Scripture to people who don't believe the Scriptures are true or don't even believe in the idea of truth, where there's no absolute. How do we translate the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that assumes they already know who Jesus is? And in many cases, even that they already believe in Jesus. How do we help people find God when they appear satisfied with the God they have already found? To what degree? To what degree it is even our responsibility to maintain the thrust, the evangelistic thrust, to convince people who have a total disdain for the church. These are questions that Christians are facing at home, at work, in school, and even in recreation. Can we be a witness for Christ? Can we? To share the good news to people who are entrenched in their own set of belief systems? The answer is yes. You and I can be a witness of Jesus Christ and we are going to find out how we can do that. So this morning I want to draw your attention to the account recorded in chapter 17, Acts chapter 17. It describes what it is like for a Christian to share the gospel in a public pluralistic domain where every person is entitled to their own opinions and beliefs. The kind of environment, everybody is entitled to their own belief. This is the context. Now Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, records the formation of the first century church. It tells of Jesus' promise that upon Jesus' ascension to heaven, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to empower believers to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission too, to reach the unsaved. Now the church grows in the midst of severe persecution. Many believers were martyred. That means many believers were put to death for their faith. But God continued to grow the church. And one of the worst persecutors of the church was a man by the name of Saul, whom Jesus reached out to. And in a very divine encounter, Paul was converted and became one of the most faithful followers of Jesus Christ. 
In the chapter before today's passage, Acts chapter 16, Paul was called. His name was changed to Paul and he, he was called by the Holy Spirit to go towards Europe. You read this, you read this account in the, in the vision of the, of the man of Macedonia. And so Paul obeyed God's call and he landed first in Philippi, then to Thessalonica, to Berea, and finally he landed at Athens, which is the setting for today's study. The key question that we are seeking to answer in today's sermon, the key question, how can we be a witness of Jesus Christ in our marketplace? Our marketplace, what do you mean by that? In the specific circle of influence, your specific circle of influence or your circle of interaction that God has placed you and I at home. Now, you, didn't, you wouldn't, probably wouldn't think that your home of all places, but we all know that our homes are connected globally. And the children, parents, and grandparents together with the domestic helpers constitute a very open domain, the marketplace at home. Your marketplace could be your place of work, your office, your school, or even your neighborhood. No one in modern Singapore is shielded from the free movement of information, trends, and influences. Now, the passage helps us to understand that a witness for Jesus in the marketplace or public domain has several characteristics. And this act of witnessing has a distinctive progression with a beginning and an end. You can follow along with me as we fill in the blanks with the acronym GRACE, which is the name of our church. The sermon outline is found in the worship bulletin and I want to invite you all to join me in a time of prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Dear God, we thank you that you have given us your word, the Holy Bible, to teach us how to live as your children on earth. We know, Lord, that your word is more than just to inform us, but your word is here to transform us. Transform us so that we can be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17, beginning from verse 16. The first characteristic of a witness in the marketplace is grieved by idolatry, verses 16 and 17. A marketplace witness at home, at work, in school, in a community is someone who will be grieved by idolatry. Verse 16 and 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw how the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Those who happened to be there. Now, Athens was the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. Roman had conquered uh, Greece and the literally capital of the ancient world. This is Athens. Now, in the middle of the city was the Agora, which is usually translated marketplace. It's not the market. It's called marketplace right now. The Agora has a much more extensive meaning when we explore it more deeply. The Agora was a place where intellect was celebrated, where people were engrossed with discussing the latest cultural ideas. It was a center for media, art, entertainment, and culture, as well as the financial center of Greece. It was the home of philosophers, orators, sculptors, painters, and poets. It was also the great university where thousands of strangers gathered for study. 
This is the Agora. This is the marketplace. Now, in that day, where did people get the news? From the Straits Times? No. Where did the artists display their work and performance? Art Centre? No. Where were the financial transactions made between investors and business people, SGX? Where were philosophical ideas debated and discussed? You guessed it. The Agora. The marketplace. Paul found himself in a pluralistic, anti-Christian society of skeptics, people who don't believe, cynics, and agnostics. Athens was a place where many people think of themselves as enlightened and open-minded. Very much like today's Singapore, isn't it? Now, in the midst of many of them, in the minds of many of them, all paths, every path lead to the same place. All gods, all gods were worthy of worship. And whatever spiritually-minded person you can be, you are most welcome to voice your belief. Sounds very much like our world, isn't it? So the passage begins with the description of Paul being greatly affected by what he saw. He was greatly affected because he saw Adam was full of idols. Some translations read like this, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Another translation says that his spirit was provoked. Another translation says his spirit was stirred. The New Living Translation says that he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now it is not an understatement when this text says, Athens was full of idols. An ancient proverb claimed that there were more gods, more gods in Athens than men. Athens, the university world. Paul was greatly affected when he saw the idols. Now as followers of Jesus Christ, what is your reaction? What stirs us, troubles us, freaks at our heart, provokes us and distresses us? What stirs in our heart? I hope it's not COE and BTO. Important though this might be, I'm also tracking. I'm also tracking all these things because it's part of our entire universe, so to speak, right? Important as this might be, it should not be the main occupants in our minds. Now, why should you be provoked? You ask yourself, why should you be provoked when you see others offering their allegiance to anything or anyone other than the God in the Bible? Why should you be provoked? When people offer their worship to an array of idols, don't you think we will be very distressed by the destructive effects their way of life causes? Aren't we troubled by the bondage these people are under? If we are not distressed, if we are not stirred, if we are not troubled, that people without God desperately need Him and that they are looking at the wrong place of all, all things, we will never take the first step to reach out. And if distress at the sight of people under bondage is not engrafted into our DNA, perhaps something inside us is disconnected. Something inside us is disconnected from the heart of God. Now, embedded in the meaning of this original word, are connotations of someone being ripped apart. Ripped apart with contradictory feelings. Contradictory feelings. You find these emotions in believers who are convinced and committed and care for the unsaved. Now, then you ask yourself, some people have it. Huh? Some people have it. Some people don't. If you have it, good for you. Praise God. Do something with it. Me? I do not have such thoughts. I'm easy. I'm easy. Go lucky. I let it pass. Please, you, go ahead. Now, is this emotion or way of thinking self-generated? Some of us have it, some of us don't have it. 
Is this something that you can summon from your inner reserve? Do you know where this complex emotion originates? The tearing apart. This complex feeling is first and foremost fully embodied in Jesus Christ our Lord. It describes the complex emotion that God Himself experiences when He sees human beings committing spiritual adultery. And so Paul has a dose of this complex emotion, one that involves love and anger. God looks and sees human beings worshipping idols. In Singapore, it's July. Okay, not July, but the seventh month, right? probably August. God looks, and looks down and sees human beings worshipping idols, building, the, building their lives on everything else but God. God knows these things and enslave people, even destroying them. And God says, I love you too much to let you destroy yourself. Therefore, I'm coming to get you, to win your affection back. That's what drove Jesus to the cross. Sin nailed Jesus to the cross, but love kept him there. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. We know about John 3.16. What about John 3.17? For God did not send His Son. John 3.17 says it. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so the cross reveals Jesus that Jesus cannot. Jesus cannot allow humanity to continue on the road to eternal condemnation. Enslaved by sin and Satan, Jesus had to die so we could come to life. Now, when this truth sinks into all of us, when this truth sinks into all of us, it changes you and I. Paul's love for the people of the Roman Empire, meaning that the Gentiles, different from Paul's own ethnic city, Paul is a Jew, he was a Jew, but his love for the people in the Roman Empire fueled his urgency to communicate the truth of the gospel to these people who believe in the plurality of gods. You know the Greek culture, right? You know the Roman culture. To people who claim to know God but didn't really know Him, Paul desires to introduce these men and women to the way and the truth. Now, you want to note here, Paul wasn't paralyzed or depressed, or depressed by his distress. He was stirred up, he was provoked, but he wasn't paralyzed. He was spurred to action, moved to do something about it. Communicating the gospel to people who didn't believe the scripture to be true was a driving motivation for Paul. His passion and his focus. We can cultivate the same essence. Our burden for people can become the fuel that drives us to want to reach out and share the gospel. Are you grieved by idolatry when you see only once a year you feel a bit awkward and you are grieved by the smoke and the haze instead of grieved by the fact that people are enslaved? Paul was grieved at the sight of idols engulfing the landscape of Athens. In your marketplace, your circle of influence, or your circle of interaction, what are the idols that enslave people? And are you bothered by it? And now, this is the first characteristic of a witness for Jesus Christ. When you are affected, what will you do? This leads us to the second characteristic of a marketplace witness, which begins with the letter R. Paul was not enslaved. None of us should be enslaved. Yes, we are grieved, but we should not be enslaved. And leads us to the second characteristic. Verses 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with him. They talk to him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul initially debates with the Epicureans and the Stoics. 
the two leading schools of philosophy at the time, okay? the cultural and intellectual elites. Both of these schools rejected traditional religion, meaning that they didn't make religious sacrifices, they didn't go to temples to worship, and they didn't openly pray. Now, the Epicureans, Epicureans believed the gods, the gods were distant and far away. These gods were oblivious to what's happening to humanity. In the minds, the gods were unconcerned, uncaring to what was going on in the world. These are the Epicureans. Now, the Stoics believe that God and the world are one, pantheism. God and the world, we are all together. Now, they call Paul a babbler. Verse 18, babbler. Worse still, they call God foreign. Now, what will you do if people call you, call you names? How do you feel when people misunderstood your good intention? Do you dismiss them? Write them off. Don't do that. Doing that will let Satan have a foothold. Let Satan gain the victory. If Satan wants to shut you out from being a witness, for Jesus, let him do it on his own. Don't help him to achieve his evil goal. Carry on doing what God wants all believers to do. Share the good news. When you are a witness for Jesus Christ, some people will resist, while others will reject. Now, resistance is not the same as rejection, although they are very close. And at times, I've misinterpreted someone's seeming resistance to God. I misinterpreted when they are just resisting, and I fail to recognize their immense curiosity about God. They are cautious but honest search. They are people who long to know the truth, and the appearance of resistance is their front. Some project a blur face? Just because they ask skeptical sounding questions or, or they doubt what they are saying with their funny look, doesn't mean that they do not hunger for God. Hopefully it's not your makeup, your hairstyle. Now, I got a friend, Mr. Cool. Mr. Cool, huh? Mr. Cool. He always asks difficult questions when I meet him and try to share the gospel to him. His question reveals his resistance to Jesus Christ. They, they were almost always framed in a negative. You don't really believe that Jesus is only path to heaven, right? Come on, do you? He said this type of Singapore slang. Or how can you believe that the, the Bible is inspired by God? We live in modern time, brother. A good thing he's not my real brother. Okay? I cannot stand his incessant negative thoughts about the gospel. I have other things to do, but I, I meet you, right? But he's negative. Now, this friend I will call a really high-maintenance guy. After spending time with him, my energy level depletes real fast and I need a bottle of Red Bull. But I tell you, no amount of drinking Red Bull can leave my discouragement in this friend. When I, sh when I see the sharing of the gospel, you know result. You absolute zero result as far as I can see. I have, I have several countless conversations with him and very often I'm led to believe that this is a lost cause. This is a time waster. And then one day, out of the blue, out of the blue, he called me, asked me out for lunch. So as we sat down in the food court, with the food in front of us, he suddenly said, let's say grace. So I bowed my head, closed my eyes, and I was about to pray, which is my usual practice, when he cut in and prayed to God to bless the food. When we finished praying, I jokingly told him, wow, you can really behave like a Christian. But seriously, I shook my head like this, accompanied with a look of dis a disapproval, the kind of disapproval that only pastors can do without getting punched in our face. He looked at me with his funny grin again. You don't think I can be a Christian, right? The typical Singapore slang that has a way of disarming people. 
makes him feel, okay, I will give you another chance. Then his face took a serious expression and said in a military sort of way, the SAF way, I am a Christian. I stared at him in shock until he returned again to the disarming way. Cannot believe, right? He's right. I cannot believe him. I spent so many times with him. I must be sure that he believed in the, in the right gospel. And so, for the next two hours, I found out what God has been doing all this while. He told me he had been intrigued by what I had been sharing about the good news. But despite the countless meetings we had, despite my continued sharing of the gospel, he was somehow unable. He was unable to grasp the full significance of the gospel until one day everything just clicked up here, he pointed. One day everything about the gospel made sense to him. Every doubt, every counter-argument he had were resolved. He was fully satisfied and at peace with the mystery of God's love and mercy and grace on one hand, vis-a-vis God's righteousness, wrath and judgment. Resistance is not the same as rejection, but even if you cannot be sure, there is no reason to dismiss anybody. When you interact frequently with the non-church or the unsafe, or sometimes even with believers, sometimes people call you Babylon Lee instead of Bobby Lee. So what? So what? It's not nice. It's not nice. My neighbor avoided us after last time we invited them to, to, to come to our church. Avoided us. Instead of Bobby Lee, they call it Babylon Lee. So what? As far as my own experience tells me, it's, it's only on rare occasion all right, that people receive the good news. You presented with bells and whistles, with red carpet rolled out in front of you, and they say they want to believe in Jesus Christ. So very rare. So how do you take it? Babbler, so-and-so. Thick skin, huh? Thick skin? Or poor hearing. Poor hearing. No, the secret behind this is not thick skin or deafness. The key is that we are followers of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Master, who was called worse and treated worse than criminals. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. The worst kind of demonstration. Crucified between two thieves. Let us remember that. Now the second characteristic you find in the witness of the gospel of Christ is you must be rooted in the resurrected Jesus Christ. This phrase, Jesus and the resurrection, is repeated twice actually in verse 31 as well later on. Grieved by the enslavement of idolatry, rooted in the resurrected Christ, we turn our attention now to the third characteristic that identifies a marketplace witness. Verses 19 to 29. It affirms, you affirm God's involvement, intimate involvement actually in humanity. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or Matthew saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now Paul gets invited to a place called the Areopagus or we call the Mars Hill. In Roman mythology, Mars was the god of war. The counterpart in Greek was Ares. So they call Areopagus or Mars Hill. Now Mars Hill described the location that was situated between the Acropolis and the Agora. Does not remember mentioned the marketplace, Agora, and then the Acropolis. Now the Epicureans I mentioned believed that gods were uninvolved, so they looked at humanity from a distance. To a large degree, just as I mentioned, 
Stoics is pantheistic belief. They don't believe in God at all because God and the world are identical. So now, how will you start a conversation with someone who does not believe in God, who does not believe in the Bible? Would you start off by pointing to these people that where they have gone wrong or got off target? Which is what we usually do. Hey, friend, let me tell you, this is what the Bible says. But only pastor can do that. Let's look at this. All right. How will you start a conversation with someone who does not believe in the, in the God of the Bible? Paul begins his conversation by telling them, Paul begins his conversation by telling them that Athenians, they are, they are very religious. That they are very religious. Now, some believe this phrase is, 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 is a compliment. All right? Hey, you are, you are very religious. The idea being that Paul is actually buttering, buttering up his hearers. That means he's disarming them to gain their acceptance, to gain their reception. Is this the correct understanding? We should follow this, isn't it? When you meet someone, hey, hello, friend. No, let's be friend, friend, so on and so forth. Is this the understanding? Smooth out the pathway before we, we, we sharpen our knife. Actually, the word can also be translated as very superstitious. Paul is saying that you are very superstitious. In, the, in fact, in the, in the Roman world, virtually everyone was religious. And, and Paul was probably making a statement of fact by, in the way he conversed with the people. You are very, very superstitious, but in a, in a proper tone. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aeropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the object of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim this to you. So while Paul was walking in the, in the city of Athens, he found an altar, or one particular altar, called the, the inscribed with to an unknown God. Now, in fact, in fact, there were many altars in ancient Athens with this inscription. It's not the only one to be found on, on the Areopagus, all right? There are many such altars in ancient Athens with this inscription. Why? Because the pagans of the day, the unbelievers of that day, wanted to make sure they didn't miss, okay? They want to make sure they didn't miss any God, lest somebody... Alright, someday, this God show up and be angry at them for not being worshipped at. So they will point to one of these altars and say, hey, this is your altar, okay? We have been worshipping you, park over this side. So there are many such altars, there's not just one. Now Paul used this ignorance about the true nature of God as his starting point. In essence, Paul is saying, I'm not trying to introduce you to a God who hasn't been involved in your life or to a God you have never seen or encountered. Today we find many people who are in Singapore every bit as spiritually minded as those at Mars Hills. You find people they talk about God and may, may even claim to worship or follow God, but in reality, in reality, they don't really know the living presence of Christ because they haven't been transformed by the power of the gospel. Even if they know, if they, even if they know what the gospel is, but they have not been transformed. Okay, this is this is not the case only outside the four walls of the church, but it's also a pervasive reality inside churches as well. Verse 24, Paul went on to say, The God who made the world and, every, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now think about it. Implicit in the thinking of Paul is that God is already at work in people's lives. And all they need to hear is to have the gospel explained to them. God is not, remember the Epicureans? They're far, 
God is very far away and cannot be bothered, is oblivious to what's happening. No, implicit in Paul's thinking is that God is already at work. The challenge for us, do we believe this is true or not? That God is at work in people's lives? That God is intrinsically and intimately as well involved in humanity? The Bible tells us in Matthew 10, the, the, the few verses in Matthew 10, 29 to 31, talks about the hair on your head, talks about the sparrow, that you're more worthy and more priceless than sparrows. God is very involved. And so to be, a, to be a witness in the marketplace that God has placed you, in the office, in the bank, military, healthcare, social enterprise, charity organization, whatever the setting in your neighborhood, we can draw on people's spiritual longing and assure them, declare to them, affirm to them that God is very much involved and cares for humanity. Paul went on to say, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. God affirms that God is intimately involved in the affairs of humanity. And so Paul deals with the false attitude among the Greeks who believe that their race originated from their own ethnic homeland and was thus of a superior stock, the Greeks, Alexander, of a superior stock than the rest of humanity. But Paul teaches them that the one true God made all people from one man. From one man. And this man we know is Adam. No one particular ethnic group or people can claim to be superior to another one. Disregard the colors. No one. Paul also tells them of the wrong concept of history. That Paul tells them God determines the course of human history. Not fate. Not karma. Not chance. Coincidence. God is the one. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are, we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, copper, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The Athenians' own philosophers had taught them that they were dependent on God. Their own philosophers can imagine, but they don't know which God. For in Him we live and move and have our being. The Athenians, their philosophers, taught them that they were dependent on God and had been created by Him. But an important part of their religious tradition involved making idols to worship as gods. Not only that, to worship as God and to take care of them, polish. Paul is pointing out a contradiction. In essence, he's, he's asking, if you are dependent on God, how can you make a God who is dependent on you? If, you? if you were created by God, how can you create a God? The God of the Bible, as we know it, is not the lifeless idols conceived in human minds and made with human hands. So a witness in the marketplace grieves. He grieves at the idolatry that he sees. And he's stirred to act because he's rooted, he's rooted in the resurrected Jesus Christ, which keeps him going, keeps him on course. He affirms and announces to his listeners that God is very much involved in humanity in a very intimate way. Paul is telling them, I know this unknown God who dwells among you and I have been changed by the power of the gospel. I want to tell you who this God is and help you to discover and encounter this living and transforming presence that only God can give. Now the question is, how do you help someone discover and encounter God's transforming presence. How do you help someone discover this? 
that God actually can transform. Now, this leads us to the next point, the letter C. Cause for repentance. Verse 30 says like this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Right? God closed his eye. You were ignorant. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. This man, of course, we know is Jesus Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus Christ, remember? From the dead, this is verse 31. That's why you look at verse 18 and this is verse 31. The resurrected Christ. When a person is presented with the gospel, his mind is at war. When you tell him about God's love, God's wrath, his mind is at war. In our culture, it is impolite. In our culture, it's impolite to probe further. You see his face a little bit black, and you know, not due to the sun. And then we drop the subject. Rather than stopping, we should ask for a decision, a call for repentance. This is what Paul says. Okay, God has ignored in the past. He overlooked. Okay, he give you a chance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, as heralds of the good news, as heralds of the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to call sin what sin is and communicate a picture. Communicate a picture of a new redemptive reality. So that we can invite people into this new redemptive reality, isn't it? And so we mustn't stop calling people to change the direction of their lives. Otherwise, the lunch is wasted, isn't it? You go all the way and then, okay, the guy's face has changed. He's not very happy. You drop everything. You talk about what's happening in the real world right now. We mustn't stop calling people to change the direction, to turn from idols. They are destroying their lives and turn 180 degrees to God. Now, then the key is, the key is what? The key is how we say it. Hey, <laughs> repent or you shall likewise perish. We can't say this kind of thing. Is there even pastor got problem to say this type of words, right? The key is how we say it with love and genuine concern. Sometimes when I preach a sermon, I can't help but be stirred emotionally because we are not here just, pastors are not here and teachers are not there to just mouth what the Bible says unless we ourselves really believe in that. So the key is how we say it with love and genuine concern rather than judgment, condemnation. And one of the biggest mistakes I've committed in witnessing has to do with the application of what it means to call someone to make a decision to repent. I mistook dogmatic confrontation and call it bonus. Oh God, this guy is ready. Let's you know, going for the kill. I mistook it for, for bonus. Wow, praise God. I can do all things to Christ strengthen me. No, this is dogmatic confrontation. To call a person to repent doesn't mean confrontation or threat. You pay for lunch. Paul did not argue. He simply presented a bold invitation rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. G-R-A-C-E, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not us. Uh, <clears throat> so you see how a witness for Jesus interacts with the people he comes into contact with. Your boss, your colleagues, your children, your neighbours, your friend, some total stranger you met at the recreation centre. So a follower of Jesus Christ can be an effective communicator of the good news. The starting point is you become grieved by the idolatry you encounter and you move on to act based on the fact that you are rooted. You are rooted in Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. You affirm the reality of God. God is working behind the scene, not you and I. You think we, are, we think that we are really the front man. No, behind the scene, God is working. So you affirm the reality of God and the intimate involvement of God in human affairs. Despite of our sin, and then you call for repentance as a humble but necessary invitation. G R A C. There is one more characteristic involved in witnessing to your peers. 
which leads us to the last characteristic, which begins with the letter E. Letter E, verses 32 to 34, an example to follow. I will not read because in the interest of time. Now, the three different reactions to Paul sharing of the good news are the same wherever the gospel is preached. The first group, mockers, who mocked, completely rejected the message. The second group are the others, the others who are willing to hear more on the matter. They did not immediately reject, but they weren't quite, they weren't quite ready either. Now, the third group, those who joined him and believed. And among these new believers was even one of the leaders of the Athenian religious world, Dion. Dionysius, the Areopagite. Now, if you share the gospel, if you share the good news to your family, to your friends, to your neighbours, your circle of influence, your community, some may choose to mock you. Some may choose to adopt a way of see attitude, but some others may follow you. They may follow you. They will learn what it means to follow Christ by following how you follow Christ and how you project what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ says, Follow me as I follow Christ or be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, 1, 11, 1. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Now, between sharing the gospel, let me ask you, between sharing the gospel with our lips and living out the gospel with our lives now, which is easier? Share the gospel with our lips, live out the gospel in our life, which is easier? The answer is obvious, isn't it? It is not our strong debating skills that won over our listeners. It's not. It is whether our listeners can see the transforming power of the gospel oozing out, oozing out of every pause in your lives that help them to hasten, to want to make a life-changing decision, to trust what you have said, to take your word for it. It may take some time, yes, but it's what they are seeing in your life. It's not what, what they hear on your lips, but what they see in your life. The gospel is always first about living before it is about speaking. Many people are desperately looking for someone who has been changed by God because they are desperately looking to be changed by God. But if they can, I want to be changed by God, but I can't see anyone who has been changed by God. How can that happen, right? People's desire to know the God we know will be sparked when the God we know seems real. When the God we know seems real to them, they want to listen to the conversation we are having with God. And they want to learn how to live the life we are living as we follow God. So believers who have authentically and deeply experienced God and the transforming power of the scripture can be very effective witnesses. We need to be very deeply and relationally connected to the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Remember verse 28? In him we live and move and have our being. We need to very, be very strongly connected to God. The implication, when you share the gospel to someone and the person believes, partially, or partially or fully. That person would need to learn more. And this learning, this learning more could very well take the form of following you, interacting with you more over a, period, a prolonged period of time. For us as, communi- as, as, as communicators of the gospel, witnesses of Jesus Christ, people must conclude that we are honest men and women who reveal evidence that we really know God. In Jesus' case, even his enemies acknowledge his integrity. In uh, Mark chapter 12, his enemies says that, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so for all of us, the same, isn't it? Sharing personal stories of real and current, real and current, not 10,000 years ago, real and current transformation in our lives can illuminate the truth we are teaching from Scripture. 
At times, it, it can even become the most powerful part of your sharing because it captures emotion and engages the human spirit. Very quickly, let's go to the conclusion. Reflecting on the Mars Hill experience, remember that it is God who places you and me in different circles of influence or interaction or even one-off event. Even one-off event. Just as God was the one who called Paul to respond to go to Macedonia, instead of Asia, he moved west to Europe. And Paul eventually landed in Athens. Similarly, God calls you and I and places you and I in different modern-day mass hills. Different mass hills. Whether in Singapore, in Malaysia, in anywhere, God places us in different mass hills. God places you there so that you can be a witness for Jesus Christ. So the beginning of the process of an effective witness, as I mentioned just now, of the gospel is when you are grieved, when you, when you see that the world are filled with idols. Hopefully not your home, which I, which I suspect will be. You see, idol is not just a, a miniature thing, it could be anything else. An expensive uh, piece of jewellery, a beautiful colour TV, I don't know, whatever it is. Right? At home, at work, in school, different social circles, all these places are increasingly filled with idols, physical objects as well as non-physical objects such as the value system of the world. But instead of being paralyzed or worse, to walk away, close your eyes, close both eyes, you respond in action because you are sure that Christ is deeply rooted in you. You share with people by affirming God's intimate involvement in humanity. Helping people to see that the God we serve is not a lifeless, emotionless piece of metal or wood, but a living, caring, holy God who intervenes. You call for a decision to repent. Politely, please, politely, and in deeper sincerity, invite the listener to make a decision. Turn 180 degrees from self and sin to Christ. Finally, the most difficult part, be willing to be an example for others who believe in what you have shared and they want to learn more. I want to end today's sermon with a question and then applications. The question is this, how do we look at what Paul did in his culture and context, and can we do the same as ours? Think about this. The Word of God is not for information, for transformation. Think about this question. How do we look at what Paul did in his culture and his context, and then do the same in ours? Think about this, but from this point in time, I want to encourage three things for all of us. How you can apply today's sermon in your lives. Immediate application. Number one, <clears throat> we have three more Sundays to Christmas. If you have not already started talking to your family, your friends, your neighbors about Christ and the true meaning of Christmas, it's not too late. Even on Christmas Day itself, it's not too late for someone to hear the gospel. Never too late, the good news. Christmas service starts at 10. It's an ideal time to invite. There's no reason for you not to invite. But remember, you should already be interacting and engaging with them well before Christmas. You cannot bring them here and, oh, I was so grieved by the idols in your life. You can't do that. You should be interacting with them. Right? Kind of thing. So, let's do two, uh, three things. Number one, on the sermon outline, write down the name, all the initials are very, very private. Write down the initial of the family member, friend, colleague, classmate that you want to invite. Write it down and then commit the name to God. Number two, this afternoon at 12.30, sorry, this afternoon at 11.15, we have the evangelist talk. But at 12.30, after the evangelistic talk, we are going out to the 
marketplace, we are going out to the community to distribute flyers for Christmas. There's only a handful of us, I think about six that I can count by my fingers. But it's fine. We got 1,000 flyers to distribute. If we have more people, we cover the ground very fast for this Sunday. And God willing, another Sunday next week. So, three things. Write down the name or initial of the person you want to invite. Attend the evangelistic talk today at 11.15 after the youth uh, talk, youth briefing. And then finally, volunteer yourself. Volunteer yourself to join us to distribute the flyers to the neighborhood. Because why? They may not be your particular marketplace, but they too, they too need to hear the gospel. And let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that we are recipients of your grace. We are reminded that we became Christians because someone was willing. Someone took the time to share the gospel and did not dismiss us. He did not, or she did not, write us off. Explain it to us, walk with us over many hours as we struggle. Now we ask that we too can be that someone who will go out and share the gospel, be a witness of Jesus Christ to the marketplace that you call us to, at home, at work, at school, recreation, medicine, community. Help us to commit to inviting people to church on Christmas Day. There are some initials or some names we have written on the bulletin. Help us to commit to invite them, knowing that people need to hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus had come to redeem humanity from sin and Satan into the everlasting arms of our Creator God. May Jesus be glorified even as churches are celebrating the advent of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. May our lips sing carols of great joy over the birth of our Savior. But Lord, may our lips also share good news with others in the marketplace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.